If I Should Die by Emily Dickinson. If I should die and you should live, and time should gurgle on, and morn should beam and noon should burn, as it has usual done. If birds should build as early, and bees as bustling go, one might depart at option from the enterprise below. Tis sweet to know that stocks will stand when we with daisies lie, that commerce will continue and trades as briskly fly. It makes the parting tranquil and keeps the soul serene, that gentlemen so sprightly conduct the pleasing scene. Violin Vice contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Violin Vice. I'm Audie, your host for today. And I'm John John. I'm not the host today. Um, but if you guys could give us five stars, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word and move us up the charts. We'd really, really appreciate it. Also, if you guys have any spooky or true crime stories, please send it to us at violinvice at gmail.com. We're working on a couple bonus episodes and we'd love to hear from you guys. So, today's topic is, as we said in previous episodes, Jack Mm. the Ripper. Um, And this is probably part one of part two, or part one of two uh, episodes that we're going to do on Jack the Ripper. Maybe even three. Maybe even three. I went down one too many rabbit holes, and there is a lot of information on the victims. So, yeah. Well, I'm excited. I am, too. Um, and since there is a lot and probably too much, let's get into it. Okie doke. All right. And I wanted to say I got most of the stuff from jacktheripper.org, um, as well as my other sources are posted on the block. So please look there if interested. So to kind of set the scene, in the year 1888, London was the largest capital city in the world, as well as the most wealthy. Queen Victoria celebrated 50 years on the throne. London was ever expanding at the time, but not all of it was thriving. The East End was overcrowded, poverty stricken, unsanitary, and crime ridden. Dozens of murders happened between 1888 and 1892, and a lot of them have been speculatively attributed to Jack the Ripper. But we're only going to talk about the five that we know that Jack the Ripper did. So these five victims are Marianne Nicholas, found August 31st, Annie Chapman, found September 8th, Elizabeth Stride, found September 30th, Catherine Eddowes, found September 30th, and Mary Jane Kelly, found November 9th. And I do want to say that there were three victims that are speculated to be Jack the Ripper, but they were also considered uh, part of the gang violence uh, that I'm not going to go into, at least not this episode. So to summarize, if I, if I got this right, super crowded, poverty stricken, very filthy. Yep. Lots of gangs. Yep. Lots of gangs, lots of violence. Police did not like patrolling the area. Um, most people who like most people 
uh, or families in the area would rent out one room and there could be up to 20 people in that one room. And as well as like if they couldn't afford a room, they were they would pay like eight penny for a double bed and I believe it was four or five for a single. And then if you couldn't even afford that, you would pay for a standing room inside a building. Ooh, yeah. just a stand? Yeah, just a stand. So people would sleep like standing up and there would be a lot of people in like a single room. I doubt they'd be standing up. They probably would be like leaning against something, but well, if they could stand up. Yeah, leaning like, against a rope or leaning against a wall. That takes skill. Yeah. Or, I mean, people would also sleep rough, which is just outside, and then, like, filth and everything. But London is pretty cold during the winters, so, I mean, you wouldn't really want to do that. Yeah. Uh, Definitely not. So, with that, let's get on to uh, Jack the Ripper's first victim, Marianne Nichols. Okay. So, Marianne was born to a locksmith, Edward Walker, and his wife, Caroline, on the 26th of August, 1845, in Soho, London. On the 16th of January, 1864, she married William Nichols, a printer's machinist, and between 1866 and 1879, the couple had five children. Edward John, Percy George, Alice Esther, Eliza Sarah, and Henry Alfred. Their marriage, however, broke up in 1881 because of disputed causes. Her father accused William of leaving her after he had an affair with a nurse who had attended the birth of their final child, though Nicholas claimed to have proof that their marriage had continued for at least three years after this uh, date of the alleged affair. He maintained that his wife had deserted him and was now practicing prostitution. Hmm. Yeah. Not, I mean... Not really a good way to go, but there wasn't really a whole lot of work for women to do. Yeah, it'd be a tough call. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, he maintained that uh, his wife uh, deserted him was practicing prostitution. Police reports say, however, that they separated because of her drunken habits. So, basically, mm. they blamed her. But, honestly, like, if your husband's cheating on you, I would be drinking a lot as well. Yeah, just to and cope. Women tended to be very much blamed for almost everything in situations about that time, right? Yeah, they were, and like it's not to say that he wasn't a drunk too. He totally could have been. Not probably not, was. Yeah. So, anyways, um, he was legally required to support his estranged wife, and uh, William Nichols paid her an allowance of five shillings a week until eighteen eighty two. Uh, that's when he heard that she was working as a prostitute and he was not required to support her if she was earning money through illegal means. Oh. Yeah. So hmm. she probably was working as a prostitute earlier, but like he's still, since they were legally married, he's still required to support her because, like I said, women didn't really have a, a good means of making money at the time. No. So, Nichols spent uh, most of her remaining years in workhouses, boarding houses, living off charitable handouts, her and her meager earnings as a prostitute. She lived with her father for a year or more, but left after they fought, and her father stated he, uh, that he heard she had uh, lived with a blacksmith 
named Drew and Walworth after that after she left. So in early 1888, the year of her death, she was placed in Lambeth Workhouse after uh, being discovered sleeping on the streets in Trafalgar, Trafalgar Square. Again, forgive me, we're country pumpkins. Mm. I'm doing the best I can with the pronunciations. And Workhouse, I'm not exactly sure if that is that sort of just like a homeless shelter slash... So temp agency type thing. Have you ever seen what? What's the musical that I'm thinking of? Oliver, where he asked for more. Do you remember? Oh, Oliver Twist. So, like essentially orphans that orphans or you know uh, disowned wives, like kind of the same thing where like they do work in like a warehouse or manufacturing plant, and then they get meals and a bed to sleep in. Essentially, they work for staying alive yeah okay yep. not really well paid but not really paid at all just food and a yeah. bed okay i got it yep in may of that year she left the position um she was an alcoholic and her employer mr crowdy and his wife were tea toddlers meaning that like they were absent they didn't Uh, like nor uh did they ever drink alcohol she left uh after stealing their clothes worth three pounds and ten shillings because she wanted you know to make some money Mm. selling the nice clothes at the time of her death nicholas was living in Whitechapel common lodging house in spitalfields where she shared a room with a woman named emily or nelly holland hmm so what did she look like? Well, she was about five feet, uh, two inches tall, had brown eyes and gray and brown dark hair. And on the night of her death at about 11 p.m. on August 30th, Nichols was seen walking Whitechapel Road. At 12.30 a.m. August 31st, she was seen uh, leaving a pub on Brick Lane in Spitalfields. And an hour later, uh, she was turned out of 18th Thrall Street as she was lacking the four pence required for the bed. Mm. So she is, you know, renting a single bed. Okay. Her last words were that she would soon earn the money needed for the bed uh, with the help of a new bonnet she had recently acquired. Hmm. So she was going to, you know, prostitute so. herself. Yeah. yeah okay. Yep. She was last seen alive on the corner of Osborne Street and Whitechapel Road at approximately 2.30 a.m., one hour before her death, by her roommate Emily Ernelli Holland. To Holland, Nicholas claimed she had earned enough money to pay for bed three times that evening, but had repentantly, or had repeatedly spent that money on booze. Hmm. At around 3.40 a.m. on August 31st, 1888, a carter named Charles Cross was making his way to work along Bucks Row, and that's a uh, narrow, cobbled Whitechapel Street. And it was, just to kind of give you a, a picture, it was lined on one side by warehouse buildings and on the other side, uh, two-story houses. So, Ooh. and like, those were the worker houses for the warehouses. Okay. As Crouch approached uh, a board school, that is actually still there and it dominates the western end of uh, Bucks Row. He noticed a dark bundle lining, lying in a gateway on the left side of the street. 
So, like so many of the district's alleyways and passageways, the street lighting in Bucks Row is minimal. So, very, very dark. He, you know, can barely see a thing. Mm. So, at first cross, uh, couldn't really be sure what the bundle was. It looks something like uh, discarded uh, tarpon. So, that would be kind of useful for his job. Yeah. Um, so, he went to go investigate it. As he drew closer, he realized it was, in fact, the body of a woman who was either dead or drunk. As Cross uh, stood rooted to the spot, unsure of what to do next, he had heard footsteps behind him. And turning, he saw another carter, uh, Robert Paul, walking towards him. Come and look over here, Cross called. There's a woman lying on the pavement. The two men stepped gingerly over the road and stooped to where she was. She was lying on her back, her legs were straight out, and her skirts were raised almost over her waist. So she was posed. Yeah. Um, Charles Cross reached out and touched her face, which was still warm, and her hands, which were cold and limp. Cross said, I believe she is dead. And Robert Paul uh, placed his hand on the woman's chest, and he thought he had felt a small, like, a small movement. Hmm. Uh, so Paul said, I think she's breathing, uh, but very little, if she is. And then Paul suggested that they, like, sit her up to see, you know, if she was conscious. But Cross refused to touch her again. Mm. Uh, yeah. Like, was he, like, freaked out or just, like... I think so. Like, they didn't want to, like, you know, touch a sleeping woman and... Uh, yeah. Like, if it was dead, like, there's some superstition behind, you know, touching a dead corpse. Well, I mean, that might be more, like, sanitation or illness-related type stuff, too. Yeah, true. Okay. Um, but, anywho, so they were actually running kind of late for work, and they had done as much as they could. So they pulled their skirts back down to, to her knees to cover her decency, and they set off towards their prospective workplaces, agreeing to tell their first policeman that they came across uh, mm. to what they saw. But neither man had noticed in the pitch darkness of Buck's Row that the woman's throat had been slashed so savagely that her head had almost been cut from her body. And they actually later said that her bonnet was kind of keeping her head attached, which was kind of a gross detail. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, her body was then discovered by beat officer police constable John Neal, who turned in, into Buck's Row and proceeded to walk past the board school shortly after Cross and Paul had left the scene. Hmm. Uh, he had noted in his report that there wasn't a soul about, um, and he had not really seen anyone on his walk. Um, so, it was, like, deserted, aside from the two guys that kind of came through he didn't even see the two guys that came through so like oh. they must have been like just ahead of him um but he did examine the body and notice the uh blood oozing from her throat she was lying on her back with her clothes kind of disarranged you know from the guys yeah. covering her decency um at the time he had felt her arm which was quite warm uh from the joints upward so she hadn't been dead that long and they did uh, practice, or not practice, but they did judge time of death by how warm the body was, even though it's kind of an arcane method now. Yeah, but, I mean, 
work with what you have. Yeah. So as he was examining her, he noticed another PC John Thane passing at the end of the street, and he flashed his lantern to attract his attention and told the PC that here's a woman with her throat cut. Um, as his colleague approached him, he yelled, run at once for Dr. Lewin. As Thane hurried off to fetch the medic, another PC, Mizen, who had been alerted by Cross and Paul, arrived at the scene. So it kind of started to get kind of crowded? Yep, it did. And these are all, like, police constables um, that mm. are coming here. So uh, Neil sent this one uh, to bring reinforcements and asked him to fetch the police ambulance uh, for when Dr. Lewin arrived. And Dr. Lewin arrived around 4 a.m. and he carried out a courtesy examination of the body, noting that the severity of the wounds to the throat and pronounced the life deceased. So he was the one to actually, like, formally pronounce her dead. Okay. Um, and uh, on closer examination, he also observed that both the body legs were warm at the time that he arrived there. But the hands and wrists were quite cold, so the body was, you know, getting colder. Time had passed. Yeah. Since she first initially died. This led him to surmise that she could not have been dead for about a half hour. So she might have still been alive when the first two came across her. Oh. That's a little disturbing. Yup. As Lewin went about his grim business of investigating the body... News of the murder was beginning to fly through the immediate neighborhood, and people started to gather. By now, uh, Dr. Loon was kind of becoming a little uncomfortable with the number of sightseers that were arriving at the scene, so he ordered the body to be moved to the mortuary where, where he would do a further examination. Smart. Yep. Smart. So, PCs Thane and Nell uh, lifted the body onto the police ambulance which at this time is really just a wooden hand cart like you know in monty python and the holy grail to bring out your dead cart yeah i wouldn't call it an ambulance at that point no especially if it's pulled by hand and as they did so they noticed that the back of the woman's clothing was soaked with blood which he had presumed had run down from the neck wound Mm. but we'll kind of cover that here in a minute Uh uh-oh he also observed a mass of congealed blood underneath the body, which was around six inches in diameter. So, like, dried, you know, dry and jelly-fied blood. So, it had been there for a while. Yeah. And but a long while. Not a long while. And it mm. was starting to go towards the gutter. Okay. So, like, I mean, slowly running that way. Once at the mortuary, which was in reality just a brick shed... They began uh, to take down the description of the deceased. So besides the neck wounds underneath her clothing, they found a deep gash that ran all the way to the woman's abdomen. Mm. And she was disemboweled. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, it was a gash... So I wouldn't say it was anything like surgical. Like her neck was gashed and then they didn't actually find the slash that like went down from her neck to her abdomen till they did the autopsy. Oh, so like it was it a single cut type thing? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Oh. 
Yeah. So they went to go fetch Dr. Lewin again to kind of take a look and see kind of what he all did. But before he arrived, uh, two of the workhouse poppers um, had stripped the body of its clothing and proceeded to wash it down. Mm. And they dumped just the gar- garments in an untidy pile, which kind of erased a lot of evidence. Yeah, not the smartest, but they wouldn't really be able to do a whole lot with it at that time, would they? No, uh, just like, you know, to see, well, they were kind of rough with the body. So like, I mean, the way stuff was cut, the way the clothes were put on, like they could kind of get a surmise what happened and how. Okay. But kind of ruined it themselves. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, anyways, Nicholas was buried on the 6th of September in 1888. Um, and her body was transported in a polished elm coffin. This was provided by Mr. Henry Smith, a Hanbury Street undertaker. So, I mean, it was pretty nice considering she was not, you know, very uh, yeah. rich. Yeah, she was, she was killed by a person and... Kind of wanted to do something nice for her in the afterlife, probably, I'm guessing. Yeah, and her funeral was attended by her strange husband and Edward John Nichols, her eldest son, who was Hmm. about 22 at the time. And she's buried in the City of London Cemetery in a public grave number 210752. It's on the edge of the current Memorial Garden. And in 1996, uh, they decided to formally mark Nichols' grave with a plaque so people can go visit it. Still a little weird to visit somebody who was murdered that you don't know. Like a hundred some years ago. But I mean. I think that has more to do with the fame of Jack the Ripper than it does her herself at this point probably but i mean it's it's good that they did it but it's i'm not sure the motives for it were in the right places yeah Yeah. got it anywho moving right along to jack the ripper's second victim annie chapman annie chapman was born eliza ann smith in paddington on the 25th of september 1840 she was the first of five children born to George Smith and Ruth Chapman. George Smith was a soldier, having enlisted in the 2nd Regiment of the Life Guards in December 1834. Reportedly, the years of Chapman's youth revolved around her family's or her father's military service between London and uh, Windsor. Chapman's parents were not married at the time of her birth, hence she taking her mother's name. Although they did marry on the 22nd of February, 1842, in Paddington, following the birth of their second uh, child. Okay. So, in 1844, the family relocated to Knightsbridge, where George Smith became a valet. The family eventually relocated to Berkshire in 1856. And according to her brother, Fountain, Annie had first took to drink when she was quite young, about this time. And she quickly devoured was developing a weakness for alcohol even though her siblings tried to like stop her and make her promise that she wouldn't continue but i mean moving around this much she must have had a pretty rough childhood 
Uh, I'm pretty sure anyone at that time would have a rough childhood, but not having like a same place to live always probably added worse wear on that poor girl. Yeah. I I mean, most of these uh, women that I'm going to talk about had very similar upbringings and uh, marriages, so they didn't really mm. live the happiest life. But I figure if we focus on their life and then go into Jack the Ripper, it at least kind of brings a little bit of justice to them, or at least that's my intention with covering yeah. their lives. Yeah. But still, how how old was she when she became an alcoholic? I assume in her teens, early teens. Okay. So um, probably not the earliest a person could at that time, but still no, pretty early. I think about 14 to 16, if I got the years right. Well, we're from Wisconsin, so we might know a few like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Anywho, let's, can relate. <laughs> let's move right along. Um, so census records from 1861 indicate all members of the Smith family, except for Annie, had relocated to the parish of Clear, C L E W E R, Clear. Okay. Yeah, and Chapman was believed to remain in London, possibly due to her employment as a domestic servant. So, like a maid? Yeah, like a maid, a housekeeper, okay. that type of thing. Okay. So her father, George Smith, was the valet to Captain Thomas Naylor Leland of the Ding, the Denbingshires Yeomanry Cavalry. Again, I am so sorry. <laughs> I can probably only correct Debenshire. Yeah. But no clue for the rest. You... Yeomanry, Calvary, but it's it's Calvary and then Devonshire. Anyways, okay. <laughs> uh, let's see We're how good at words. <laughs> let's see how long Audie can struggle on these pronunciations. <laughs> I believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, anywho, on the thirteenth of June in eighteen sixty-three, Smith accompanied. So this is her father, uh, mm -hmm. and accompanied his employer to a, a horse racing event where Smith then committed suicide by cutting his own throat that night. So he went to go see horses and then committed suicide? Yeah. I He was, I, I mean, just from the sounds and reading into the background, it sounded like their family was not a really a happy family. Oh. Well, that didn't, probably didn't help the drinking. No. No. So I just included that to kind of give a bit more background to Annie's issues. Contemporary accounts describe Annie as an intelligent, sociable woman with, again, a weakness for alcohol, particularly rum. I mean, Ooh. a woman after my own heart, rum's my go-to. <laughs> um, why is the rum always gone? Ah, uh, you know why. That's why. <laughs> Uh, an acquaintance actually described Chapman um, as a very civil and industrious woman when she was sober. Mm. Though, I mean, she did drink a lot. So that was probably far and few between. But she was five feet in height and had blue eyes with wavy dark brown hair. Um, and this led her friends to call her Dark Annie. I'm starting to notice a pattern. Yeah, there's a couple dark so-and-sos. 
He had well, a type. He did have a type. Like right around five feet, darker hair. Yup. That that seems to be the consistent factor so far. And prostitution. But we're <laughs> we're getting there. Um so <laughs> on May first of eighteen sixty nine, Annie married her first cousin, John James Chapman. That's oh. Annie Chapman. The ceremony was conducted in All Saints Church in Knightsbridge district of london which was witnessed by one of her sisters emily and a colleague of her husband named george okay uh the chapman's residence on their marriage certificate is listed as 29 montiplier place in brompton although the couple are believed to have briefly resided with the acquaintance uh george and his wife in uh, bayswater hmm so, in the years following the marriage, the Chapmans lived at various West London addresses, so the good part of town. And in the early 1870s, John Chapman obtained employment at, in the service of a nobleman in Bond Street. Uh, the couple, while he was employed, had three children named Emily Ruth, Annie Georgina, and John Alfred. And Emily Ruth was born at Chapman's mother's home in Montiplier Place in Knightsbridge. Annie was born in South Bruton Mayos and Mayfair and John Alfred was born in Berkshire village of Bray but John was born crippled leading the Chapmans to seek a lot of medical help for their son at the London hospital before later placing him in an institution for the physically disabled close to Windsor oh um bit bit of an assumption here but I have a feeling that might have something to do with her marrying her first cousin yeah, I just don't think they knew about that yet and the whole genetic genetic thing. But yeah. Just, just a shot in the dark. Yup. Maybe. Maybe. Anywho, although Chapman had struggled with alcoholism um, as an adult, she had reportedly weaned herself off by 1880. Um, so like right before she started having the kids. Uh, but her son's disability is believed to have contributed to her having alcohol dependency later on Mm. so the chapman family then relocated from west london to windsor uh, where john chapman took a job as a coachman to a farm bailiff named joshua weeks and the chapman uh, family were then living in the attic rooms of saint leonard hill farm cottage the following year emily ruth so one of chapman's daughters died of meningitis following the death of their daughter both chapman and her husband took to heavy drinking so over the following years uh chapman was known to be arrested for public intoxication in both Cluer and windsor there's that c word town again um but chapman and her husband separated by mutual consent in 1884 and this was maybe attributed to john's employer like being embarrassed about annie being drunk all the time I mean, it's more normal for men, too, than women, too, but she was pretty regularly drunk. Not considered a very womanly person. No, and just having her on the property, like, if guests were to see her, you know, he'd be embarrassed or whatnot. Yeah, I can kind of see it. Yeah. So, John Chapman retained custody of their living daughter while Annie relocated to London. 
and her husband was obligated to pay her a weekly allowance of 10 pence via post office order. Uh, the precise reasons, uh, again, this is what I kind of discussed, the precise reason for the couple's separation is unknown, although during her inquest, police, again, blame it on Annie's alcoholism and drunken mm. and immoral ways. As they would. They always blame the woman. Yep. But anywho, two years later in 1886, John Chapman resigned from his job due to his declining health and relocated to New Windsor. He died of liver cirrhosis and edema on the 25th of December, leading to a cease of payments. So those are both like drinking, heavily drinking diseases. Ah. Mm-hmm. I'd assume the liver one was, but I didn't know about the other. Yeah, at least that's what I looked into it. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Anyways, Chapman learned of her husband's death via her brother-in-law, and her surviving daughter, Annie Georgina, was 13 at the time. She was believed to either have been placed in a French institution or joined a performing troupe, which traveled with a circus in France. And I'm going to go with the circus troupe because that sounds a lot more fun, and I'm like, you go, girl. Yeah, I mean, come on. You run away, join the circus, and now you're an acrobat. That's... I mean, it's every kid's dream. Unless she was like the bearded woman, which, I mean, she probably could have done. Hope I don't not. know if that was the case, but. Yeah. The options are endless. Yeah. <laughs> so after Annie's husband's death, she re- relocated to Whitechapel. And because she was primarily living on her weekly allowance of 10 shillings from her husband. And over kind of the following years she resided in those common lodging houses that we talked about both in Whitechapel and Spitalfields seems to be a common area for that it was a highly dense populated place hmm. for poor people um before her husband's death she was known to be uh residing with a man who made wire sieves for a living and I don't know what those are are they like sieves sieves yeah yeah okay because she was known when she was staying with him as Annie Civy. Oh. Yeah. But hmm. by the end of 1886, when her allowance stopped, he just up and left. And that was probably because Annie wasn't getting an income anymore. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Judging him. Judging him harshly. Yeah. After learning of her husband's death, a fellow resident named Amelia Palmer said Chapman would become tearful whenever discussing her husband or the lives of any of her children. So Annie wasn't really happy. No. No. It's not a good time. And Chapman, uh, to her friends, just became very depressed in general and kind of just seemed to abandon the world to live. Um... And she would constantly be drinking heavy at this point. So by May or June 1888, uh, Chapman resided in Crossing Hands Lodging House at 35 Dorset Street, playing, uh, paying eight penny a night for, or eight pence a night for a double bed. According to the lodging house deputy, Timothy Donovan, a 47-year-old brick laborer named Edward the Pensioner, Stanley would typically stay with Chapman. Chapman at the lodging house between Saturday and Monday, occasionally paying for her bed. So, probably a fling. Uh, something. Something's uh, there. 
Um, but Chapman didn't really like resorting to prostitution as much. She only resorted to it when she had to, and she tried to earn income from her crochet work, um, making anti-massacres and selling flowers that, you know, supplemented her prostitution. Hmm. But according to both the lodging house deputy, Timothy Donovan, and the watchman, John Evans, shortly after midnight on the night of September 8th, Chapman had been lacking the required money for her nightly lodging. She was known to have drank a pint of beer in the kitchen and in this property with a fellow lodger named Fed- uh, Frederick Stevens at approximately 12.10 a.m. So right around midnight. Okay. Before informing another lodger that she had earlier visited, she had recently visited her sister in Vaxa Hall, and her family had given her five pence, and Chapman had spent it on alcohol. Hmm. So she was kind of just up out of luck for money. Yeah. Partially because of her drinking. Anywho, at approximately 1.35 a.m., Chapman was seen leaving the premises likely with the intention of earning money to pay for a bed via mm-hmm. prostitution. Yep. And she said to the lodger, I won't be long, Brummy. See that team Tim keeps the bed warm for me. Meaning, you know, that she's yeah. just going to find a customer and then be back. Evans last saw Chapman walking in the direction of Spitzfield's Market, which is a common place to yeah. get customers. A Miss Elizabeth Long testified that she saw Chapman talking to a man at approximately 5.30 a.m. on the 8th of September. The two standing just behind the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street in Spitalfields. Mrs. Long described the man as being about 40, age, 40 years of age, slightly taller than Chapman, with dark hair and a foreign shabby genteel appearance. He was wearing a deer stalker hat, which I think is just like a brown uh, leather hat. I think that's the Sherlock Holmes hat. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And a dark overcoat. Okay. According to Long, the man had asked Chapman the question of will you, to which Chapman replied yes, as Long was passing. Hmm. Long was certain of Chapman's identity at the time, but she had never seen the man before. And she was certain of 530 because she heard the clock just right after she passed. With this sighting, it's likely that she's the last person to see Chapman alive and her murderer as well. So, a little before 6 a.m., John Davis, an elderly resident of 29 Hanbury Street, the building in which Chapman was standing in the yard of, came downstairs Mm. and walked along the narrow passageway and opened the back door. The sight that met his eyes sent him reeling back in horror. Moments later, two workmen walking along Hanbury Street were suddenly startled when, from behind the door of number 29... The old man came stumbling out and uh, cried, men, come here, there's uh, been a murder. Uh-oh. Uh, nervously, they followed him along the passageway, looking into the yard of 29 Hanbury Street, when they saw the mutilated body of Annie Chapman lying on the ground between the steps and the wooden fence. So, this gets a little gruesome. Uh, her head was turned towards the house and her clothes had been tucked up above her waist again, exposing her red and white striped stockings okay a handkerchief was tied around her throat uh wearing this when the killer had cut her throat and again this is kind of holding her head on okay her face and hands were covered in blood like she uh, had defensive wounds 
um, and her hands were raised and bent with the palms towards the upper portion of her body, giving James uh, Kent the impression that she was struggling. Mm, broken wrist from pushing? Like, bloody wrists, like she was being stabbed and was trying to be defensive. Oh, uh, so like blocking yeah. or attempting to block things. Yes. Or, okay. And and to probably hold her throat um i'm not quite sure the order of the um injuries but that that could be yeah yeah i mean i would yeah after a few moments of staring at the scene the three men sprang into action racing out in all different directions to find a policeman of what he had witnessed immediately began to sink into james kent causing him to abandon his search and go instead for brandy to steady his nerves understandable yeah anywho henry holland raced up commercial street and headed across Spitalfields market where he encountered a constable on his fixed point duty holland panted out the news that he found a mutilated body and was somewhat taken aback when the officer on duty curtly informed him that it was against procedure for him to leave his post he was so okay yeah i mean what are they posted there for if not to like I are they like maybe they're like traffic cops? Maybe. I I don't really understand. Oh, why? Or maybe he was a fake. Maybe, but <laughs> um. Anywho, he was so angered by the officer's like kind of curt attitude uh, that he later made an official complaint uh, to the police station, only to be told that the officer had been correct to follow procedure and not leave his post. Well, then that's just bad rulemaking. Yeah. John Davis, the third man, meanwhile, headed to Commercial Street Police Station and bursting through its doors, breathlessly demanded to see the most senior officer. Moments mm. later, Joseph Chandler was hurrying along to Commercial Street towards the body. So, I mean... Took, it took, like, three tries to yeah. get the police over there? Yeah, three tries to get some help. Like, I mean... <sighs> they didn't have phones. They couldn't just call 911 back then, like... Well, it's England, so it'd be nine nine nine, which is their thing. Yeah, isn't right? I think so, but isn't one place like one one one? I don't know which one. Or zero zero zero. I I don't know. But I know, know the UK is nine nine nine. Okay. So, hot tip for you. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyways, they were rushing through Hanbury Street, and a crowd of spectators had already gathered. Um, he ordered that the vicinity be cleared of all sightseers and then set a constable back to Commercial Street Police Station, instructing him to bring as many reinforcements as possible to help contain the crowds. Because this is like, you know, right when everybody goes to work and everything. Yeah. So anyway, another officer was dispatched to fetch Dr. George Bagster Phillips, the divisional police surgeon. Uh, Chandler then acquired some sacking from one of the neighbors and used it to cover the body until uh the police surgeon arrived mm. to kind of like you know detour onlookers and yeah make uh, it so there's nothing to see here type thing yeah okay by the time phillips arrived around 6 30 a.m the crowd outside the house was some several hundred strong casting a curious glance down at the body it was more than obvious to him that the woman was beyond medical help curiosity Just... has peaked just know that her teeth, uh, her teeth were knocked out. 
uh, her head or her neck was sufficiently cut and she was disemboweled again, um, as well as that entrails were kind of placed over the body. Oh. I mean, that's gross. But, I mean, there's been horror movies with grosser. So, later during the post-mortem, besides what was all seen out on the street, uh, it was realized that the killer had deftly cut out Annie Chapman's wound and had took it home with him. Oh. Uh. Yeah. When I say, like, it was pretty gross, like, I mean, stuff was everywhere. But, okay. So, disemboweled. Teeth are gone. Mm-hmm. Took the womb. Yep. Home? Took the oh. womb. Like, took it with them. And this is kind of a common theme because there is parts of everybody missing. Like, either uh, ears, wombs, liver, whatnot. Maybe he was trying to, like, make his own body like Frankenstein. I doubt it because it was only parts and not the whole thing. But, Yeah. Well, I mean, a whole womb, I guess, but only yeah. parts of the others. I don't know. Maybe black market, like, surgeon or something. Maybe. I doubt that anything would be usable, though. So, a little bit before 7 a.m., uh, her body was outside the mortuary gates after they collected it. And the people that were unauthorized to strip down the last body uh, were reprimanded, and the body wasn't actually touched um until the doctor came smart and the doctor was dr phillips and he when he, he did the postmortem examination and discovered that the womb was gone okay yep that doesn't sound like a fun job no no okay well at least they learned from the last one not to mess with the body as much yeah so besides the doctor, the coroner uh, conducted an additional autopsy and noticed that her lungs and brain membranes were in an uh, advanced state of disease, which ultimately would have resulted in her death within a matter of months. And these were due to alcohol-related diseases. I was going to say probably a mix of that and with the prostitution, I'd probably add syphilis to it as well. Yup. So... Probably. Well, I mean, I don't actually know because they're, uh, we'll get into it, but one of the girls was treated for, uh, a sexually transmitted disease at some okay. point. So I, I don't know really what methods of treatment there were, but I think nah. they could at least identify them. So, anyways, uh, Chapman was buried shortly after 9 a.m. on the 14th of September, 1888, in a service paid for by her family. Uh, she was laid to rest in a communal grave within Manor Park Cemetery in Forest Gate, East London. At the request of Chapman's family, the funeral was not pub- publicized uh, because at this time uh, the murders were getting a lot of attention. So the service was only uh, attended by the undertaker, police, and a few of her relatives that knew the re- arrangements. Okay. Um, so the precise location of Annie Chapman's grave with, within Manor Park Cemetery is actually lost, but a plaque was placed in the general area saying her remains are buried within this area. Okay. 
you have to remember that the and this is a little strange to us being from the states but a lot of these historical old towns uh have so many cemeteries and whatnot and use of space that i mean it like it would be difficult to organize and separate everybody especially in the communal graves yeah yeah, it's just too many yeah i mean think of the catacombs like there's just yeah yeah that's got to be just a logistic nightmare in and of itself but yeah when you're in a place that's been there for so long and it has so many people in it it's it gets to be crowded yep so jack the ripper's third victim is named elizabeth stride and stride was born elizabeth gustin daughter gustafa gustafa's daughter g-u-s-t-a-f-s daughter um anyway gustaf daughter that's how i'm gonna say it okay. uh uh the 27th of november 1843 in stora to tumblehead a rural village within the parish of torselanda west of gothenburg sweden wait and, sweden yep she was born in sweden hence the oh. harder pronunciations <laughs> um she was okay uh, the second of four children born to Swedish farmer Gustav Eriksson and his wife, Betta Karlsdotter. Um, oh. So I think this is like where your last name is like your father's uh, uh, first name with your mom's last name, like that whole thing. But I'm not 100% sure. Well, like Eriksson would be like his dad's name was Eric. And Gustav's daughter would be Gustav. And then... Is it her dad? Yeah, Gu- yeah, Gustav is her dad. And then Carl's daughter is her mother's maiden name. So daughter... Okay. Would be that. Okay. Um. So, cool. yeah. As a child, Elizabeth lived upon a village farm. And all four children were raised with... Uh, raised in the Lutheran faith. And... I mean, they were farm kids, so they had to perform numerous, numerous chores on that farm. And Elizabeth was confirmed in the Church of Torsalanda the 14th of August, 1859, at the age of 15. The following year, she chose to relocate from Stora Tumelhead to the city of Gothenburg in search of employment. Shortly thereafter, she obtained employment as a domestic worker in the Gothenburg parish of Karl Johan being employed by a couple named Olofsson. And this employment would last until the 2nd of February, 1864, where Elizabeth relocated to another district of Gothenburg, again securing employment as a domestic servant. So she was between 5 feet uh, 2 inches to 5 foot 5, and had curly dark brown hair, light gray eyes, and a pale complexion. Fits the bill. It does. So, unlike the other uh, conical victims of the Whitechapel murders, at least three who resorted to prostitution due to poverty for failed marriage, she actually became a prostitute earlier in life. Mm. And Gothenburg police records dating from March of 1865 confirm her arrest upon this charge. Okay. Yep, so she just was a prostitute for employment and means of earning before she was married. 
Okay. And she is actually known to be treated on a minimum of two two occasions for contracting venereal disease, which is uh, the sexual disease. Yeah. And uh, she, during this time, she also gave birth to a stillborn girl. Oh. Yep. So, in February of 1866, Elizabeth relocated from Gothenburg to London, and her precise reason is kind of unknown, and she told multiple different stories of why she relocated. Mm. To some, uh, she said it was due to her employment in the domestic service of a gentleman who lived near Hyde Park. To others, she had family in London and chose to visit her relatives in the city before opting opting to remain there okay whatever her reason she likely funded this trip the inheritance she had gotten from the death of her mother in august of 1864 so she was a prostitute in sweden yep was then employed by somebody she uh was employed employed multiple times as a domestic worker so like a maid servant whatnot and then she moved to London for one of many reasons. That was mostly, like, she was able to because of the inheritance from her mom's okay. death. So she got money, went to London. Yep, got money, went to London. Gotcha. Was already a prostitute, wasn't married yet. Okay. So upon her arrival in London, uh, Elizabeth learned to speak both English and Yiddish. So she was trilingual besides Swedish. Cool. In addition to, you know, her language she was known to have dated a policeman briefly in the late 1860s on march 7th of 1869 elizabeth married john thomas stride a ship's carpenter from sheerness who is 22 years older than her oh yep Hmm. uh the couple were married in a modest ceremony conducted in saint Gilles in the fields church and they had no children Okay. Yup. For several years after they married, after they married, uh, they resided in East India Dock Road, operating a coffee shop in Poplar, East London. And their income was also supplemented by John Stride continuing his trade as a carpenter. But by 1874, their marriage had deteriorated, and although the couple continued to live together, the following year they had to sell their coffee shop due to financial hardship. So, I mean, everything was just kind of crumbling around them. Oh. Oh, That's Uh, not good. Yup. And in March of 1877, Stry was admitted to the Poplar workhouse, and this had suggested that they had already separated. However, since its records in 1881 suggest that they had uh, reunited in the district of Bow and had primarily separated by the end of that year, uh, with Stride being admitted to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary. Infirmary. Infirmary? Yeah. Infirmary. <laughs> you, you know. Yes. The We're hospital. good at words. We are. Because um, <laughs> she was suffering from bronchitis in December of 1881. Okay. She was discharged on the 4th of January, 1882, and had believed to be taken re- taking residence in the common lodging houses on Flower and Dean Street in Whitechapel shortly thereafter. And she resided there for two years, and on October 24th of 1884, her husband, or ex-husband John Stride, died of tuberculosis in Poplar and Stephanie's sick asylum. 
Okay. So, while residing in the common lodging houses, Stride occasionally received charitable assistance from the Church of Sweden in London from 1885 until her death. Much of that time, she had a relationship with a dock laborer named Michael Kidney. <laughs> kidney? Yep, kidney. Like that's, the organ. That's a little unfortunate. Yep. Who, uh, and he resided in Divin Devonshire Street. Uh, the couple had a tumultuous, tumultuous, anyways, the couple had a volatile relationship, and on numerous occasions, the couple had separated, uh, with Stride sleeping in various local lodging houses before returning to live with Kidney. In April of 1887, Str uh, Stride had filed a formal charge against Kidney, although she later uh, failed to show up in court, and the charge was later dropped. What was the charge? For, like, assault. Oh. I mean, I kind of assumed that, but... Yeah. Mm. So, mm. anyways, in addition to prostitution, Stride occasionally earned income by sewing and house cleaning work, so still, like, the domestic servant work an acquaintance described her as having a calm temperament though she had actually appeared before the magistrate's court on approximately eight occasions for both drunk and disorderly conduct and the use of obscene language which i mean the use of obscene language i feel like everyone nowadays would probably get charged with that had we lived there i would but... i would agree with that but i'm guessing the drunken disorderly conduct was Probably she was drunk in public and maybe a little bit more liberal with her. Yeah, probably. Appearance. Could be. I don't know. Yeah. Just a guess. Elizabeth Stride also went by the alias Annie Fitzgerald at some of these hearings, and she could have used that name elsewhere as well. And her relationship with Kenny would continue on, on the on again, off again like fashion between 1885 and September 25th of 1888. That doesn't sound like a healthy relationship at all. No, very vital. Or just, you know, unhealthy, like you said. So on the day prior to her murder, Stride had uh, made some wages uh, cleaning rooms at her current lodging house, which she was paid six pence for. And th that evening, she wore a black jacket and skirt with a posy of uh, a red rose. Her outfit was complemented by a black crepe bonnet. So, I mean, she was kind of all dressed in black. In an effort to make her clothing look more respectable, though, she borrowed a brush from resident, a fellow resident. And at 6.30 p.m., Elizabeth Stride and then Elizabeth Tanner briefly visited a pub together. Elizabeth Tanner was her friend on Commercial Street uh, before Stride returned alone to her lodging house. And okay. What it meant by, like, her borrowing a brush is, like, cleaning her clothes a bit more and everything and not look as dirty. Less disheveled, more yep. More put, put together. together. Okay. However, it rained heavily that night, and the next sighting of her was at 11 o'clock when a man named Jay Best and John Gardner were certain that they saw her sheltering in a doorway of a bricklayer, bricklayer's arms on Settle Street. She was in the company of a man who was about five foot five inches tall and had a black mustache, sandy eyelashes, and was wearing a black morning suit together with a uh, billycock hat, which I don't know what most of this clothing is. 
I don't know what a billy cock hat is. Yeah. Anyways, according to Bess, uh, they did not appear willing to go out. He was hugging and kissing her, and he seemed like a respectfully dressed man. We were rather astonished the way he was going on with the woman. And the two men couldn't really resist bantering the guy at the couple's expense. So uh, they had called out, watch out, that's a leather's apron going, getting around you. Anyways, embarrassed by the cha- chaffing, the couple kind of took off. And Best and Gardner watched them hurry off through the rain towards Commercial Road at around 11.45 p.m. The only reason why I included the leather apron is one of the suspects for Jack the Ripper. His nickname was actually Leather Apron. And this apron is going to kind of pop up and a bunch of the murders oh yeah shadowing but it so like the guy called the leather apron is actually innocent and like the apron that showed up on one of the murders was actually for a resident of that building that was cleaned by the mom and just left out to dry but the press at the time i kind of just took this apron theory and ran with it ah yeah as they do as they do so a man named Marshall, who was a laborer who lived at number 64 Burner Street, was standing outside his house when he noticed a man and a woman outside number 63. They both seemed pretty sober, and he watched them begin to kiss. Marshall heard a man remark to the woman, you would say anything but your prayers, and then the couple moved off heading in the direction of uh, Dudafield's yard. And I have no idea what that saying really, like, implied. Me neither. Anyway... Moving on, I'm just recounting, you know, the night's uh, tales. Yeah. I'm guessing, though, you would say anything but your prayers is just like, you are very charming, but clearly not Devious. one who... Yeah. 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 Anyways, uh, Marshall describes the man as being middle-aged and stout, having the appearance of a clerk, and he was around five foot six inches tall, clean-shaven, and respectfully dressed. He wore a small black cutaway coat, dark trousers, a round cap with a small sailor-like peak. And I'm including all this because these were the only sightings of potential murderers, and we still don't know no. who did it. Possible suspects. Possible suspects. So at 12.30 a.m., P.C. Williams, who police officer, police constable, proceeded along uh, Burner Street on his and noticed a man and a woman on the opposite side of the road to uh, Dudafield's yard. And this is where Elizabeth Stride's body was would be later discovered. This man was approximately 28 years old with a dark complexion and a small dark mustache. He was about 5 foot 7 inches tall, had a dark overcoat, a hard felt uh, deer stalker, dark hat, and dark clothing. The woman, whom Smith later identified as Elizabeth Stride, had a flower pinned to her jacket. However, the couple were doing nothing that aroused Smith's suspicion, so he continued on his beat, keeping uh, ahead to the commercial road. And by beat, I think just like his rounds. Yeah, like where his patrol is. Yep. And then the most important witness to have seen Elizabeth Stride in the 30 minutes before her body was discovered in Dudelfield's yard was a Hungarian Jew by the name of Israel Schwartz. He turned into Burner Street around 12.45 a.m. and noticed a man walking ahead of him. The man stopped to talk to a woman who was standing in the gateway of Dudelfield's yard. Schwartz was later empathetic with the woman he had seen. Schwartz uh, thought that the woman he had seen was Elizabeth Stride. Mm. 
And it's likely that Shorts witnessed the early stages of Stride's murder, therefore being the only person to really have seen Jack the Ripper actually murder one of his victims. Uh, And his statement came under a lot of scrutiny as he spoke no English and therefore had to give his evidence through an interpreter. It's also worth noting that his statement to the police and interviews gave journalists uh, do differ in certain details. However, the police do seem to have taken him actually seriously as a witness. Hmm. So according to Schwartz, the man was about five foot five, aged around 30 with dark hair and a fair complexion. He had a small brown mustache and... He had a full face, broad shoulders, and appeared to be slightly intoxicated. As Schwartz watched, the man tried to pull the woman into the street, spun her around, and then threw her onto the footway, whereupon the woman had screamed three times, but not very loudly. Schwartz appears to have believed that he was witnessing a domestic attack, so he crossed the road to avoid getting involved. Because mm. at that time, you know, people It kept... wasn't it uncommon, but... Still something to be avoided. Yep. And as he did so, he saw the second man standing, lighting his pipe. As Schwartz passed him, the man uh, who was attacking him called out, apparently, to the second man with the word Lipsky, to which point the man began to follow him. Schwartz panicked and began to run, and he managed to lose his apparent pursuer by the time he reached uh, the nearby railway. Hmm. The second man, Short said, was about 35, 5 foot 11, had a fresh complexion, light brown hair, and a brown mustache. He wore a dark overcoat with an old black hard felt hat. And the presence of the second man is kind of still something a mystery to this day. It suggested that the killer had an accomplice. However, evidence seems to suggest that the police actually traced the second man and then eliminated him as the prime suspect. Hmm. Elizabeth Stride was actually murdered between 12.45 and 1 a.m. Around 1 a.m., Louis Demetz, the steward of an international working men's educational educational club, returned to Dutfield's yard from West Hill Market near Crystal Palace, where he had spent the day hawking cheap jewelry. As he turned Mm -hmm. his uh, horse and cart into the yard, his horse had moved left and refused to go any farther. Looking into the yard... Demischultz saw a dark form lying on the ground close to the wall of the club. Leaning forward, he prodded it with his whip and tried to lift it. When this proved unsuccessful, he jumped down to investigate and struck a match to get a better view. It was kind of windy that night, and his match did extinguish almost immediately. But Mm. in that brief light, he saw it was a woman lying on the ground. Thinking it might be his wife, he went into the club entrance by the side and went into the club to ask if anyone had seen his wife. And when he did find his wife, he said that there's a woman lying in the yard, but I cannot say whether she's drunk or dead. Hmm. He then took a candle from the club and went into the yard with several other members. Now he noticed blood by the body, and those present winced in horror when they saw that the woman's throat had been cut deeply. Various club members had then rushed from the yard and hurried off to the surrounding streets to find a police constable. Demis Schultz and companion headed uh, to Faircloth Street, shouting murder and police at its junction with uh, Christian Street. They soon met a man named Edward Spooner. Hey. I know, right? And (laughs) uh, he asked what all the fuss was about when they told him. And Edward Spooner returned uh, with them to Dultfield. Uh, Daltfield's yard, where around 15 people had gathered. 
Spooner stooped down, lifted the woman's chin, and found it to be slightly warm. As Spooner tilted the head back, Demon Schultz first got a glimpse of just how terrible the wound to her throat was. I could see that her throat was fearfully cut, he said to a journalist. There's a gash in it over two inches and a stream of blood that ran, you know, down. Yeah. Towards the door. It was also double cut. Double cut. Yeah, so like not just one slice, but two. Okay. Uh, Police Constable Henry Lamb was found and told, uh, told, come on, there has been another murder. And he found Police Constable Edward Collins, and together they followed uh, men that had, you know, initially gone out back to Dilt uh, Field's yard, where a crowd now swelled to about 40 people or so. Lamb had ordered the bystanders to keep back so that people didn't get blood on their clothing and find themselves in trouble. And he told Collins to go at once for Dr. Frederick William Blackwell, who lived at 100 Commercial Street right nearby. He then sent Morris Eagle, I believe a club member, to Lehman Street Police Station to summon further assistance. As the two men headed off, Lamb stooped down and felt the woman's face, finding it was still slightly warm. However, when he felt her wrist, he could could detect no sign of a pulse. Hmm. When asked by the coroner at a subsequent inquest to this woman's death whether the woman's clothing had been disturbed, Lamb replied, no, I could scarcely see her boots. So this was the first one where her skirts weren't up around her waist. Mm. And she looked like she had been quietly laid down. Dr. Blackwell then arrived at the yard about 1.16 a.m., having pronounced the woman dead and gave uh, his opinion that she had been dead for about 20 to 30 minutes based on the temperature of her body. He noted that the woman was wearing a check silk scarf and the bow, which was turned to the left and pulled slightly. At the inquest of her murder, he had stated that he had formed the opinion that the killer had first taken a hold of the back of the the scarf, pulled his victim backward towards the ground, and then uh, cut her throat so that she wouldn't scream. So, this was the importance of the clothes earlier and why, like, they were upset that they had, you know, washed the bodies and discarded the clothes. Yeah. Kind of gives the story of how it happened. Yep. And so, since the killer cut her throat, she could not have cried out and have been heard because, obviously, it was a populated place with a club right there. Yeah. Uh, The police constable, Liam, gave orders to close the gates for dutiful's yard and told everybody to remain where they were so that he could carry out a search of the premises so he examined people's hands clothing for blood stains um and having found nothing suspicious he went around to the cottages near uh number 42 burner street and woke the residents who had apparently remained asleep throughout the excitement of the last 20 or 30 minutes hmm the residents in general appeared very frightened and asked Lamb what happened, and he told them nothing much, and he didn't want to alarm them any further. Lamb then returned uh, to the body to find that Inspector West and Inspector Pipporn and Dr. Phillips had all arrived to the scene. And these were people that had investigated the previous murders. Yeah. There's a lot of names, and I apologize. That's uh, fine. When Phillips and Blackwell were examining the woman's throat, All the people in the yard were then interrogated. Their names and addresses were taken. And once they had given like a satisfactory amount uh, account of themselves for their movements of that night, their hands and pockets 
were inspected and searched and then they were allowed to leave and this is important because up until this point the police didn't really have a theory but they were thinking now that the ripper lived within the area because it was quick murders yeah and it was all within a very i wouldn't say very close but still nearby area because like most of these were in like white chapel or nearby right yep uh that's why they're all called the white chapel murders too yeah so yeah so kind of uh getting this to a close a little bit um at 4 30 a.m the body was uh moved to st george's mortuary in cable street and at five police uh constable albert collins washed the blood away from the yard and this was typical to wash the scene so like people wouldn't really know what happened there yeah it's also unseemly so Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to have the yard with a pool of blood in it. At least not any cool or normal people. Yep. And I do have to say on the 1st of October, a drunken Michael Kinney walked into the Lehman Street police station and he kind of cried and was yelling about police incompetence, stating that had uh, he had if he had been a policeman on the duty in the burner street on the 30th september he would have committed suicide uh by his due to his incompetence uh he was very upset Mm. for as bad as their relationship was uh can you really did care about stride yeah really seemed to yeah and he was actually an initial suspect of stride's murder but he was later eliminated yeah probably wouldn't put that in the same mm-hmm. and just to kind of close out on kenny's story he went to the white chapel infirmary house workhouse sorry on three separate occasions for syphilis in june 1889 lumbago in august and Dispisa in october and then kenny's overall health declined after the murder yeah um yeah, and he was kind of just messed up. Well, yeah, um, I can I can see why. Yeah, and so Elizabeth Stry was buried on Saturday, the sixth of October, in eighteen eighty-eight. She was laid to rest in East London Cemetery, uh, located in the East London district of Plainstow or Plaistow, and her funeral was attended by a small number of more mourners and the cost of her service was uh provided by the church of sweden and the undertaker taker mr hawks stride's Mm. headstone was then inscribed with her name in the years of her birth and death that's more than the others yep and just briefly at this time the police were also getting letters from people and this was about the time where they got the dear boss letter where a person had signed Jack the Ripper, and they believe that this was a journalist, but this is also where about the time where Jack the Ripper got his name. Ah, uh, okay. Yep. So, people were adding more and more hype to this situation. Yep, people and journalists in this story was going wild. Uh, okay. So, with that, why don't we end the episode here? <gasps> We're going to have to wait for part two. We are. Well, that's okay. I mean, we still have more to go. We still have a lot more to go. I I mean, 
I don't know if I can handle being on hold. Can you handle? I, I think we can handle. Okay. But I'll close this off saying, you know, again, thank you guys for listening and give us five stars and uh, write a comment. We really appreciate it. It helps spread the word. Um, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram at Violent Vice Podcast or Twitter at Violent Vice. And if you want to help support the show, you can support us on patreon.com backslash Violent Vice. Please do. I mean, anything counts, but if you do the $5 donation, you can see our extra content too. I mean, we have bloopers. Yes. Which, which I'm pretty sure we're going to have most of those on there. Yes. I, I've, I think we've giggled more than a few times at those things. Most of it's pronunciation, but yeah. Most of it is. <laughs> but thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you guys next week for part two. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Violin Vice. Cover art is by Audie Griffith. Music by Annabelle Revac. If you want to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash vice or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to. This helps us move up the charts and also helps keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you.